In her poem, Perhaps the World Ends Here, the first ever Native American Poet Laureate of the United States, Joy Harrow, of the Muscogee Creek Nation, writes these words. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table, we gossip, recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We've given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at a kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of that last sweet bite. Perhaps the world will end at a table. The indigenous wisdom of our poet laureate bears a striking similarity to the vision we receive from the prophet Isaiah. On this mountain, Isaiah prophesied, God will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and well-matured wines and destroy the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all the nations and God will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of God's people will be taken away from all the earth. Later, Isaiah's vision would become the script for the book of Revelation, where John prophesied, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and God will wipe away the tears from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. Perhaps the world ends at a table on a mountain with God and all people on the earth, enjoying a feast of rich foods and well-aged wines. Sounds pretty darn good if you ask me. The attention to the quality of the food and the wine on the table is particularly important to me. If we're going to feast for all of eternity, it better be the best food and drink we can get. Don't you think? Wouldn't it be amazing if we taught our children to make Isaiah 25 their vision of heaven? I have to believe that young people would be far more interested in Christianity if they thought heaven was one big banquet of great food and wine. When I grew up, preachers did not paint a picture of heaven that sounded very enjoyable. 
It was no party, you might remember these sermons. Heaven was simply the alternative to hell, the opposite of punishment, an eternal existence characterized primarily by not being on fire. It wasn't even pictured as rest and peace as so many have throughout history, but as a kind of fluffy place in the sky where we sing praises to God all day long and hang out with our relatives at night. That sounded exactly like the holidays to me. No thank you. One person's heaven is another person's hell. If preachers had only told me that it was a banquet table, heaven, a potluck dinner, an all-you-can-eat buffet, or even just a golden corral. I would have been at worship every Sunday. If they said heaven was going to have the best wine, well, in my later years, I'd have been the first in line for church. I might have even tithed as a down payment on future bottles of liquid joy. In all seriousness, can you imagine what the world would be like, what the church might be like if preachers had spent more time describing the heavenly banquet instead of casting a vision of hell. No, I'm not talking about all those ridiculous books about near-death experiences where people come back from the edge of death and tell us what they saw in heaven. No, I'm, I'm talking about this vision here of the kingdom that we find in Isaiah 25, the mountain, a table throughout all the Bible, a vision of a table where all people are gathered together, dining on the finest foods and the richest wines. We simply, we simply don't talk about this vision enough. It's led many Christians to develop a rather anemic view of the afterlife, I'd say. Now, some might be saying out there, none of this matters, Ben. I don't believe in hell, and I'm not so sure about heaven. That's fantastic. You're in great company here at Myers Park Baptist, where there are no requirements of creed, denomination, or age. As our forebearers put it, our faith has always been more important to us than dogma. We are a congregation of various backgrounds, a free congregation without a hierarchy or set liturgy. We stand they said, with one foot in history and the other in the contemporary world, striving to hold to our Christian roots while serving today's people. We are free to create our own liturgy and our own way. And although we are Baptist in name, they said, we do not feel bound by any Baptist traditions. Everything we do together, they proclaimed, is the result of our own struggle to know what the truth is for us. I couldn't agree more. And yet there's this tension. We're not required to believe anything, including about the afterlife, but we are also teleological beings, narrative animals. We live by stories. Stories are the way we make sense of the world. Stories have a beginning and end most of the time, and the end often determines what the story means. If the world, if history, if our lives are stories, then what we believe about the end has tr tremendous power to determine the way we live in the middle of the story. Theologians say eschatology determines our ethics, which is just a fancy way of saying what we believe about the way things will turn out in the end has the ability to shape how we live in the present. What we think about the end of the world, the end of history, the end of our lives matters because it can prescribe the way we live together here and now in this place. This is why having some kind of vision is extremely important. Proverbs 29 says, 
Without vision, people perish. Or as Carl Sagan said, without vision, we go nowhere. The prophet Isaiah's vision of a banquet table on a mountain with a feast for all nations did not appear in a vacuum as a pie in the sky hope for a better future. We got some context when Beth read the scripture. Isaiah was engaged in two kinds of wars, a literal war and a war of myths. On the one hand, there was the world as it is, pictured as a fortified and abusive city where there was no refuge, no shelter for the poor and needy from the ruthless of the world. Ruthless, or the Hebrew word aretz, appears three times in succession in this text to communicate a heavy emphasis of ruthlessness. Aretz can mean ruthless and also cruel, tyrannical, or terrorizing. It's always used to describe the abusive actions of the powerful toward those who are powerless. In Isaiah's day, the ruthless were not building a beloved community, but a city of ruins, an ash heap of despair, where there was no refuge from distress, no shade from the heat, and no shelter from the storms of life. The politics that Isaiah faced in 700 BCE are not all that different from the politics of cruelty we face in our world today. In his book, The Cruelty is the Point, Atlantic writer Adam Sewer demonstrates that there is something intoxicating and contagious about cruelty that appeals to our basest instincts. He claims that cruelty has the power, strangely, to make people feel good, proud, happy, and even closer to one another. Rejoicing in cruelty can actually simulate the feeling of being in community. We see this in the way that cruelty toward strangers, foreigners, unaccompanied minors, immigrants, minorities, the poor, and differently abled persons in our society seems to galvanize groups. It's not that the ends justify the means, Sewer says. There is no end. The cruelty is the point. It's cruelty for the sake of cruelty for the euphoria of getting caught up in a collective mob who are rejoicing over the suffering of others. Isaiah, in this text, you may have heard it aptly named this phenomenon the song of the ruthless. Germans call it schadenfreude, to derive pleasure from other people's pain. Could it be we are so desperate for community that we're willing to accept any simulation of it even if it comes at the expense of other people's pain. The obscene ruthlessness of our world is enough to make us ask, is there a God? Or if so, who is this God that allows cruelty and ruthlessness to reign? And yet we see embedded in Isaiah's vision of a table for all people at the end of the world, a picture of a different kind of God. Isaiah paints a portrait of the God we see from Genesis to Revelation, a God who stands against cruelty and brings the ruthless to ruin. Here we discover a God who is a refuge for the poor and the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat and the sun. God in this vision is the one who sets the table for all people with a feast of the finest woods and drink on a mountain of love and salvation, a God who destroys the shroud cast over the people 
and the sheet cast over the nations, a God who breaks down the dividing walls between us and swallows up death forever, wipes away the tears from all of our faces, takes away our disgrace. Now that's a God that is worthy of praise, if you ask me, worthy of love and worship, following, building our lives around, eating and drinking with for all of eternity. In Isaiah's vision, we find a gender non-conforming vision of God who's hard at work preparing an extravagant meal for us. And God spares no expense at this feast. And the guest list is even more surprising than the menu. Everyone's invited. Not just Israelites, not just the chosen people, not just the elect, but the Gentiles and foreigners and strangers and aliens of all nations, not just the rich and the powerful and the insiders, but the poor and the needy as well, not, not just the leaders and the rulers. One scholar said the most important word in the Bible is with, but I think it might be all. All human beings were created in God's image. Yahweh is the God of all nations. Christ died, it said, for all people. The Spirit is poured out for all flesh. All is a very powerful word. God is preparing and hosting an extravagant feast for all people, all nations at the end of the world, wiping away the tears from all faces, removing disgrace from all of the earth. God's response to the threefold ruthlessness of the city is a fivefold all. All peoples, all races, all nations, all faces, and all the earth together, eating in love and life, all, 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 all. God's alternative to the cruelty and ruthlessness of this world is all, an all-encompassing table that we come together at on World Communion Sunday. How does a table for all overcome the ruthlessness of the world, you may ask? Well, there was once a priest named Vincent Donovan who studied the work of a France, French scholar, Francois Lieberman, who was a pioneer of new strategies for modern missionary activity to prevent missionaries from intentionally or unintentionally colonizing indigenous peoples. Lieberman urged missionaries to become one with the people so each community might receive and understand the gospel in the context of their own language and tradition. So, in 1848, Lieberman shocked the world when he told missionaries who he was training to put off Europe, to put off its customs and its spirit, and to become African for the African. Form not people in the fashion of Europe, but to allow them to keep what is peculiar to them and be formed as they should be, as they want to be. A priest named Vincent Donovan adopted Lieberman's ideas of enculturating the gospel, and he went to live among the Maasai people in Tanzania. The Maasai are beautiful, polygamous, cowherding people who believe in evil spirits and have been extremely resistant to Western intervention throughout history. And yet Donovan arrived with a revolutionary assumption that God was already there with the Maasai and that they already knew God. And he lived with them there for 17 years. He learned their customs. And in the process, he claims he rediscovered Christianity. Because their cattle live off the land, the Maasai believe that grass is sacred. It is a sacred and vital and holy, holy thing, a sign of love and peace and respect and well-being. And so when arguments arise among them, a tuft of grass is offered from one person to another as a sign of peace and forgiveness, assuring that no violence will erupt in their community. 
No Masai would ever think of violating this sacred practice of passing the grass of peace from one to another because it's, it's not only a sign, but a practice that literally establishes and maintains the unity of their community. Whenever the grass is passed successfully from person to person throughout the entire village, the Maasai gather together around a fire for celebration with music and singing and dancing. And as he participated in this ritual, Donovan realized something. The Maasai were already celebrating communion, even though they'd never heard of Jesus. They were celebrating it actually more deeply and more profoundly than any church in the world. And he realized all he had to do was to share the story of Jesus with the Maasai so they could see how they were already embodying Jesus' teachings and to invite them to add a table with bread and wine to the celebration they were already having of the grass that they passed as a sign of peace. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we remember how his body was broken and blood was shed in solidarity with the oppressed. We remember all the stories coming around tables in the Bible, like Abraham, Sarah, and Lot eating with strangers, Isaac preparing a table for his enemies, the Israelites eating at a table prepared by God for them in the wilderness, Elijah sharing a table with the widow of Zarephath, the psalmist famously saying to God, to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We remember Jesus putting new wine on the table at the wedding in Cana and setting an abundant table for the 4,000 and 5,000 in the wilderness, eating at a table with prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners, telling countless parables over and over again about banquet tables as a metaphor of the kingdom of God, and eating that last supper with his disciples at a table in the upper room and then revealing himself, his resurrected self, at a table in the town of Emmaus. And we remember then how the early church in Acts gathered daily at a common table, how Peter ate unclean foods with Cornelius at a table in Joppa, how Paul taught a divided congregation to set a table for all people at the church in Corinth. And we remember all of the tables that we've sat at throughout our own lives. We remember our family's kitchen table where we grew up as children. We remember the tables where we've eaten our holiday meals together with our families. We remember the tables where we have dined together with our friends and the tables that we come to again and again here at church where we intend to embody community by engaging in the most important ritual of our faith, enacting a sign of our unity together and our commitment to the God of inclusivity and peace, life, love, and liberation. But communion is not just about remembering the past. It foreshadows what God has promised for us in the future. Communion is a foretaste of the kingdom, the hors d'oeuvres of the heavenly banquet that God has prepared for all people and all nations. And so when we come to the table, the past and the future are united in the present just as we are united in the present as a people. We partake of communion not only to remember our past but to embody our community and to remember our future. If we do not have the future in mind when we feast together, our celebration will be overwhelmed by sentimentality and nostalgia. To remember is not just to recollect the past, but to reenact it and to relive it and to reconstitute and remember ourselves as the community that we're called to be together. A community where all people are welcome from all nations, ethnicities, classes, sexualities, and genders, where God uses a meal to overcome the ruthlessness of the world, 
to overcome the power of death and disgrace and shame and despair so we can live together in justice and peace. At the end of the book, Bread and Wine by Ignacio Salon, a man named Marika is suffering desperately. He's riven by a guilty conscience because he was the one who betrayed his entire village. However, he finds the strength to go on in the graceful words of a friend. Marika proclaims, my friend taught me nothing is irreparable while life lasts and no condemnation is ever final. And when he finished speaking with me, I had no fear and I was reborn. I was struck by the air coming from the mountains. Never before had I breathed such fresh air in my lungs. And having been freed of my fear, I stopped brooding and I began rediscovering the world. Children in the streets, people laboring in the fields, donkeys carrying loads, cows pulling the plow, I rediscovered life. Nothing is irreparable. No condemnation is ever final. The tuft of grass can always be passed again from one to another. All boundaries and divisions are temporary. And we can always begin again. This is the meaning of the gospel, the good news, the truth revealed in Isaiah's vision and Jesus' life, the hope of the kingdom, the mountain, and the table of God. The table is not just a metaphor for life, but for who we are as a people. The table is God's alternative to the fortified city and the ruthless way of life. The ruthless may not be building a beloved community, but God still is. And I believe that God is still using the church as her architect. The church must always then be a place where the poor and needy of the world find refuge from distress, shade from the heat, and shelter from the storm. As the poet Joy Haro taught us, our world, our life, our faith, and our church begins and ends at a table where the gifts of earth are brought and prepared, where we receive instructions on what it means to be human, where we sing with joy and sorrow, where we pray for suffering and remorse, where we give thanks, where we come to eat together as one body, one people, and one church. We gather at this table not simply to be nourished and sustained for the journey ahead, but literally to become the table, to be transformed into that place where all people and all races and all nations and all faces are welcome, to be that place where the song of the ruthless is stilled by the sound of our rejoicing and the good news is declared that nothing is irreparable and no condemnation is ever final. Perhaps the world will always begin and end again and again at a table while we are laughing and crying and eating together, celebrating the joy of our beloved community and savoring the last sweet bite of God's salvation. Amen.